0: Negotiating Legitimacy and Belonging, Disabled Students and Practitioner's Experience. Authors, Tal Jarrus, Terry Krupa, Yale Mayer, Afia Badalova, Laura Bulk, Michael Lee, Laura Niman Erlene Roberts, read by Laura Bulk and Earlene Roberts. Section one, introduction. People with disabilities are underrepresented in health education and practice. Health education, which has a distinct combination of academic and fieldwork learning, requires meaningful change from positioning disability as a problematic risk-based burden on the health system to an asset-based opportunity for innovation. In health practice, Positive attitudes towards and better acceptance of disabled health professionals are related to past experiences with disability in the workplace and perceived feasibility of accommodations. The experiences of disabled practitioners suggest that the main barriers to inclusion are negative attitudes and social barriers that lead to fear of disclosure, restricted career choices and progress, and added burden in educating others in the workplace about disability. Moreover, practitioners with disabilities also report that their unique experiences are an advantage for practice as they have heightened sensitivity to clients' needs and challenge perceptions about disability. Disabled practitioners also identify that they know their limitations and what solutions are needed. Barriers identified in health professional education and practice include stigma, disabling discourses, discriminatory program design, and oppressive interactions that are associated with systemic ableism. However, current understandings of this topic remain descriptive, fragmented, often include only one health profession, exclude particular types of disability, and focus on only one aspect of the career journey. Subsequently, study designs and analyses are rarely considered from a complex systems perspective with lessons learned applied across health professions, legislative, educational and practice systems. This study assumes that like all institutions where there are tensions between intentions for change in addressing equity issues and the realities and demands of day-to-day practice, the health arena is struggling in balancing various dynamic forces central to promoting inclusion. Building upon critical disability theory, we believe the issue goes beyond liberalism and the social model of disability, but towards a human rights concern, and social justice in social institutions, including the health system. Using constructivist grounded theory, this study examines the recurrent forms of social relations that underlie the participation of individuals with disabilities across health professions within the current context of health education and practice. Because of this centering of disabled students and practitioners, we intentionally move between person first and identity first language to honor disabled people's varied linguistic preferences and to acknowledge the contested nature of disability language in disability and scholarly communities. Section two, methods. This is a large longitudinal multi-site grounded theory study that uses a social constructivist perspective. The study took place in one large city in Western Canada and two smaller cities, one in the Western and one in Eastern Canada. Participants, 2.1 participants. Email invitations were sent directly to potential participants through their educational program, professional associations and social media networks, health authorities and snowball sampling, whereby participants spread the word throughout their own networks. In order to ensure confidentiality, individuals were asked to contact the research team directly via a secure email account or phone number if interested in participating. 56 individuals participated, including health practitioners, N equals 29, and students, N equals 27, with disabilities representing five professions, medicine, N equals six, nursing, N equals 15, occupational therapy, N equals 13, physical therapy, N equals seven, and social work, N equals 15. Participants self-identified self-identi- as having a disability, see table one, including physical, mental, developmental or learning disabilities. The university's behavioral research ethics boards approved the study. All participants provided informed consent. Participants met the inclusion criteria, one involved in one of the targeted health, profession- health professions, two, self identified as having experienced a disability for at least two years, a portion of which covered occurred during their education or practice, and three, experienced both academic and fieldwork learning for students. two point two procedure in forty five to ninety minute semi structured interviews, participants described what disability is like in their roles as health professional students and practitioners, including addressing their academic and professional experiences. They also discussed processes of requesting academic and workplace accommodations and navigating disclosure identity, stigma, and social support in health professions. The interview guides were slightly adjusted for the students and clinicians. Participants were interviewed up to three times over one and a half years for a total of 124 interviews. This approach allowed us to build trust, ask about recent experiences, consider the evolution of experience over time, and consistent with theoretical sampling, delve into the findings. Considering the complexity of the interview topics, each interview was intended to focus on unique sets of issues, in addition to discussing any changes they had experienced since the previous interview. Interviews were conducted by trained research assistants face-to-face or via telephone according to the participant's preference and logistical requirements. Except for two cases, multiple interviews for interviewees were conducted by the same interviewer. Interviews were audio recorded and transcribed verbatim. The research team was comprised of a diverse group of researchers, health professionals, university staff, and students with a background in disability studies, occupational therapy, social work, psychology, medicine, nursing, education, and disability services. Some team members have experiential knowledge of disability or identify as disabled. Researchers brought perspectives and expertise in areas of qualitative research, grounded theory research critical disability studies, and social and medical models of disability. This diverse representation ensured rich perspectives during data analysis and team discussion. 2.3, analysis. We used in vivo software for data management and analysis. Consistent with a grounded theory approach, the analysis focused on advancing conceptualizations and theory related to social processes inherent in experiences of inclusion and exclusion. Using line by line coding of the first eight interviews, an initial coding framework was developed and then applied to additional 10 interviews, allowing for refinements. The refined framework guided subsequent coding. We then developed higher level conceptual categories and focused on advanced, advancing interpretations of social processes based on guidelines outlined by Scott and Sharmas. Finally, we compared and integrated findings among the students and practitioners. We advanced an overarching core process, expanded on the underlying explanatory social processes and their relationships. Trustworthiness was supported by individual and team reflexivity exercises, audit trials, and investigator and theoretical triangulation. Participants were given pseudonyms to protect their identity. Section three, results. Although protected by legislation and policies that support their access to the health professions, participants experience challenges to their sense of legitimacy and belonging as health providers. We will first describe the core process of negotiating a compromised sense of legitimacy and belonging. Second, we will present tensions within the health education and practice between the commitment to inclusion and the day-to-day realities experienced by disabled participants. In the following, we focus on only six distinct but related conditions underlying these tensions, identify how and why these conditions occur, the meanings given to these conditions, and how how they are influenced by contexts. Although they are distinct conditions, efforts are made to show the relationships between these conditions through examples. Illustrative quotes are provided from our data, Table 2, and presented as a diagrammatic conceptual model, Figure 1. Several of this research team's other publications have focused on other aspects of a full conceptual model. Section 3.1, Core Process, Negotiation of Compromised Sense of Legitimacy and Belonging. Proving legitimacy can be viewed as a fundamental task for all health providers, but the norms that underlie beliefs, interactions, and practices in the health arena can be experienced by students and practitioners with disabilities as unreasonably inflexible and judgmental. This compromised sense of legitimacy and belonging extends to participants' perceptions about their potential and capacity to perform professional skills to navigate health-related social interactions and to elicit trust from colleagues and care recipients. Challenges to their legitimacy and belonging are experienced as largely uncontested in the day-to-day workings of health education and practice. As one participant noted, the situation positions disabled people in the health professions as extraordinary heroes or inspirations rather than someone who is a part of the realm of the everyday, In essence, students and practitioners with disabilities are faced with negotiating the perception that although they are in the health professions, they are not fully accepted as part of the health professions. Challenges to legitimacy and belonging arise in a context where disabled health professionals have historically been construed as having activity restrictions that impact their performance. Bruce, a clinician, considered the limited representation of disabled health professions as a reflection of limited critical internal reflection by the health professions. Quote,
1: I find that the helping professions are not nearly as good looking at themselves than looking at potential clients or customers or patients. And I think that that's really unfortunate because there's a whole set of problems associated with not having the appropriate imagery. I mean, I want to see social worker prof in a wheelchair. I want to see the blind OT. I want to see people. I want to see these professions being way better at managing inside stuff as compared to outside stuff.
0: Table two. This table has six sections and two columns. The first column is dimensions of the tension and the second column an exemplar quotation. The title of the table, illustrative quotes of the six distinct conditions that underlie the sense of compromised legitimacy and belonging. Section one, validity and transparency of the evaluation competencies. The dimension of the tension, equating the health condition with competency.
1: But she questions me sometimes. She's like, well, can you really practice if you're really depressed? Well, no, but it's not like an ongoing, it's not like I'm going to be depressed every day of my life. I really felt like she was just being a bit judgmental without understanding the whole situation. I just felt like she jumped to, well, maybe it's not safe for patients if you're depressed. Like, that's really
0: too much. The mention of attention, being held to unreasonable standards.
1: And the attitude that the true colors are finally coming out because you dropped the ball once instead of the 65 times when you didn't drop the ball. Suddenly that's who you really are. So it's all of those things that I think need to be paid attention to.
0: Being blamed for team performance.
1: With me being deaf, they think about like, how can you communicate? How can, there's so many potential for communication breakdown and that causing a problem. And health communication breakdown can lead to a problem. But they already know that communication is a huge problem among people who hear. Like how they communicate the message. How they work together to deliver messages. And I'm going at that. Because I know that I'm at a disadvantage when it comes to hearing. So I come up with all of these other strategies, all these different ways to ensure that there isn't a communications breakdown. Because if there is, they're automatically going to say it's
0: because you're deaf. Lacking transparent bona fide requirements. And what also
1: doesn't help, is part of the testing framework that they use in name of profession. And I'm sure many other programs as well are OSCEs, where the buzzer goes off, you read the scenario, you walk into the room, you do whatever it is, the buzzer goes, and then you go to the next room. That time crunch as well is very challenging, I find. And I guess I've also never been sure when or to whom I could bring that up with because I feel like that's just standardized. That's the way it is. So there's not really much in the way that
0: you can do for accommodating. Section 2, the social and physical context of practice and education. Dimension of the tension increased workload
1: because our job the demands of the job are increasing the number of staff is decreasing our caseloads are ridiculous i will tell you i would not walk into a job and i would not write that down disclose disability on my application if i don't have to and if it doesn't interfere with doing my job as such and I would never admit to it on that application form because I think nowadays, boy, they should not want to be hiring someone that they think
0: may not cut it. Competing and demeaning social climate.
1: I think with ADHD they think I'm late, unorganized, just kind of that spontaneous, really bad at group work because you're always can't get anything in on time. I would think, you know, why would you want to study with someone like that? Because they're going to be super distracted.
0: Labeling service recipients negatively.
1: I have encountered. It's slightly making fun of patients, maybe. It's such a terrible situation that people start to make jokes about it. And it hasn't always been peers, but some other health professionals I've encountered, where there's this weird culture of, in psychiatry at least, mental health, let's just make it snow, quote unquote, is apparently the expression which means provide them with tons of sleeping medication so we don't need to deal with them. So I feel like there's been some other comments in clinical work and some kind of labeling, I guess.
0: Inaccessibility of physical context.
1: When I first started, when I first graduated from my bachelor's degree, most bachelor level health professions positions require you to do home visits. Like there, it's mostly in the community and in outreach. And I couldn't do a lot of it. And I actually wasn't able to find work for a period of time. And I had no interest in working for the Canadian Paraplegic Association, to be honest. But it was the only one that would hire me because most people's homes were wheelchair accessible and they were more accommodating of disability. I applied for a job, a protection job, and was denied it because of access. And I probably could have fought it, but I didn't have that confidence at that time or the knowledge of kind of the systems and stuff.
0: Section three, the integration of inclusive practices across the health systems. Dimension of the tension. Not a system priority. It's
1: not that there is no money, it's where it's gonna be directed to. And those are the real decisions that people are making. It's do these issues of accessibility rank high enough up the whatever that is, political chain really, to warrant money being directed to them rather than something else. So I just always feel that somehow it's my responsibility and others to at least keep these issues as high up that list as possible.
0: Difficult to locate institutional responsibility slash accountability.
1: So, it's hard even to ask for things that you need for accommodations. And to get them, they will say, go on and buy it. But they haven't paid me. so. I have no money to do that. So we have several emails back and forth as to who is going to put the money out for this because I can't afford it. Or that's going to come out of the budget so I'm going to defer to the next manager that you are going to get and they can decide. Then we wait for the transition. The new manager comes in It will be six weeks and they got three weeks vacation before they start and all this kind of stuff. And my stuff wouldn't get done. There was never really anybody in charge of that. It was really nasty, really nasty.
0: Limited forms of institutional support.
1: As a student, you'll always be classified as a student with a disability. But once you're in a workplace, you're never going to be classified as a worker with a disability, at least not in my workplace setting. So I think that's the change. And so as a result, you don't get the support that you would have as a student. You don't get the resources you have as a student.
0: Reduced flexibility in specialty mobility.
1: Let's say someone who has a disability either can't stand for a long time or maybe don't have fine motor skills. That doesn't mean they couldn't be a radiologist. And it doesn't mean they couldn't be a pathologist. It depends. I don't know enough about the skills of these different specialties, but you think you would be able to create a stream that would meet their capabilities and be enriching for them and not hold them back because they can't deliver a baby.
0: Lacking accountability and procedures to support inclusion in fieldwork settings and in transition from education to practice.
1: I compromise a lot to make it work because in the end, I just want to work as a health professional and I'll do anything to make it work. I mean, if there's a cost of accommodation, I mean, it's so different because a device doesn't replace to hear well. Like you need to have a person there to be your ear. I don't have a permanent accommodation that can be built into the system that people don't recognize and don't see as required. Like for example, you have building codes that require buildings to be accessible. But people don't see the cost because it's built into the rules, to the building codes. But there's so few of us that when we come along to say, well, the medical system or the chair or co-chair of the medical care does not tolerate change, there's no accommodating people with disabilities in general. And in order for me to, to keep up, with the pace of the health profession, listening devices don't help me. They don't help me keep up. I have to have interpreters so I can keep up. Because in field work, you work with a new person every single day. You work in a different place in the hospital every single day. You know, there's no stability. There's no, you know, eight or 10 other people that you work with and establish communication to establish ground rules, people who work together, everyone works by themselves in the hospital, just trying to provide. And in school, you just do what you're told and you just have to do it. And it doesn't matter how you just get it done. So in order for me to get my work done, I need interpreters. Whereas when I'm working on my own, I establish my own environment.
0: I can choose who I hire to work with me. Lack of proactive planning of new services.
1: But that's the aspect of community, community care that's changed now, is that they want you to get to people instead of, I completely understand it, but in doing so, It also limits myself, for one, for obtaining employment. That's sort of the criteria behind the more outreach. You come to us, we'll go to you. It's effective. It works. It's great for a lot of people. And I agree with it 100%. The only reason I have issues with it is because of the limitations enclosed within that. I'm not even sure... If they examined or even look, or took into account when designing the policies and programs put in place now.
0: or integration of knowledge slash advancements related to inclusion.
1: For the past five years I had chronic pain and at that university I didn't really complain too much about it but basically I can't sit for more than half an hour without developing pain. And so it was a big problem during the exams because of how unergonomic tables are, right? And you are just a number and nobody really cares about you. It was just too much. And the fact that it was such a strenuous and painful process to get accommodations to write your exam, I was just like... It's not worth it. And the mental health really is more of a problem during exam periods. And unfortunately, with my program and how exams are structured, this is one of my other peeves. The system is why do you need to put all the exams within a five day time period? Why are you making us write 20 hours of exams within a week? Basically, that winds up to happening is we have class at the same time up to like a week before the exams. So I basically ignore my entire last block trying to study for other stuff. It's terrible for mental health because basically... There's a five-week period of time where I'm so stressed and so worried about life, kind of, and then learning all this
0: material. Section 4. Maintaining the Boundaries Between Personal and Professional Identities. Dimensions of the Tension. Enacting the Benefits of Lived Experience.
1: I think I've developed a lot of really great creative problem-solving, and I can approach problems from different ways or see things in a different way than, I think, lots of other people because they, you know, never really had to think outside the box in how they're going to tackle something.
0: Enacting behaviors to prove legitimacy and competence perceived as services recipients.
1: Typically, I think they, the clients, think I'm one of the families, especially, like I said, in eMERGE. The nurses thought I was a patient, and I've had that experience a number of times where I've been like, no, no, I'm staff. I think I'm probably more than other people. I always make sure my ID is visible. When I work in the health authority, I actually have a name tag as well, but I always make sure that I'm wearing that just to kind of show that I am who I am.
0: Enacting behaviors to prove legitimacy and competence.
1: Basically, I wanted to be away for a long time due to my disability then come back and be on the same level as everyone else. Unrealistic. But it was important to me to prove like, yeah, I've been off, but I can do this. And in retrospect, I shouldn't have come back. It was just too much too soon. Because throughout the time there, I was getting worse all
0: the time. Enacting behaviors to prove legitimacy and competence. Sometimes
1: the clients, they've never come across a person with a disability, let alone my type of disability. So they're a bit shocked. But then most of the time they're like, oh yeah, it's normal, things like that. So fine, it's only negative for a little while. And then, or if it goes really bad, It's like, look, you have to talk to her or else you don't get to go home. So it's like, can't pick and choose your clinicians. Kind of against the law, I just normalize it. I'd be like, yeah, I work in healthcare. I may be disabled, but I have my degree. And, you know, if you have any questions or concerns, feel free to talk to me about it.
0: Responding to intrusive and inappropriate questions.
1: Disability, I guess, is seen by many people as a lack of capability. Or the two arms seemed to go hand in hand. And then in that meeting, the fieldwork coordinator asked me a whole bunch of questions about like, well, can you do this? Can you do this? Can you do this? And then she told a story about we once had a student with a disability and they went into placement and they didn't read the chart properly and they got somebody up on a broken leg and walked them around and blah 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 and we had to ask them to leave the program. Is that a situation you see yourself getting in? It's just like, oh man, come on, you know? It was just like undermined me in a really, really big way. So that really cemented this maybe isn't a safe environment to share that information.
0: Section five, being vulnerable to authority figures who undermine legitimacy and belonging. Dimensions of the tension. Facing negative assumptions about capacities disheartening comments.
1: I just don't like how it's been thrown back at me after now. I had one professor say it four times. I never knew it was going to be this hard for you. You know, instead of just saying, relax, you've gone this far, you've done so, you know, there's just another way to handle things.
0: Public shaming.
1: And I felt kind of threatened. So it was me in a meeting with three faculty, and them saying this was going to happen. Probably you should drop out. And if you stay in, you might fail. And I just felt like it was not dealt with properly. And also once in a clinical or in lab, one of the instructors said like, oh, you're still here. And I didn't really take offense, but All the other students kind of came together and said, I can't believe she said that to you. I feel like
0: I have to fight, fight it hard. Feeling threat of future career damage.
1: I think in my program, it's like, I feel because the program is so fast paced and so competitive to get in, You have to put on this perfect face. And I feel like you can't let any craps under your armors show. And maybe it's not true, but I still feel like it could be used against you.
0: Disrespecting privacy.
1: When I got to class, I was super, super nauseous and I was a ghost white and I went out of class to the bathroom and came back and the instructor told me that I just look way too ill like she stopped the entire class went right to me and said you look way too sick you can come back if you start feeling better but you need to leave and she wasn't necessarily like she wasn't mean about it but It wasn't like super kind either. Like she could have brought me outside of the class or, you know, it's very abrupt stopping the teaching. And when I like was just like resting my head in class and
0: all that. So, yeah. Section six, dynamic dynamic person level factors impacting inclusion. Dimensions of the tension. Changing health condition.
1: Definitely, it's been a debate in my own mind and conversation with friends. I think that's what's challenging when you have a chronic health condition and something changes, where it's the tipping. So I've been taking time off here and there, but then now I'm like, do I just need to take a chunk of time off to actually recharge, regroup? do all these appointments, get it figured out, or do I just keep? But then this chronic health part of me is like, well, no, I'm always stubborn. I just kind of struggle through and make it work. It'll be fine. So trying to figure that out has been challenging. But by taking time off here and there, I'm running out of sick time. So now it's harder to take a chunk of time. But then I haven't been able to completely get better.
0: Changing health condition.
1: So at the beginning, I kind of told myself, oh, I would just take the meds, do the things they told me, and it would all, I'd be part of that 5%. And it would go away. And everything would be fine and it wasn't really part of my identity. But now that it has been such a significant period of time and I'm still struggling to get control of it, I'm recognizing that it is part of my identity and that I need to accept it as part of it. And you know, now I'm wearing the rings to prevent the deformities of my fingers and I wouldn't have before. I was uncomfortable with wearing the braces and the splints because I thought it would provoke response from people. And now it's like, well, no, like lots of people will just comment on the rings and say, those are really cool. And they wouldn't even know that they're related. And it's an opportunity to let people know about my disease and what it's like and what my colleagues with the disease and I, with the disease, are living with. Evolving technology. I only recently got these hearing aids, which are a lot more subtle than my previous ones. Like, I was wearing a full ear mold and behind the ears, and now I've got these itty-bitty little in the ear, but still behind the ear. And it's so strange. People are like, oh my god. I can't even see them. And I'm going, but you noticed the other ones and didn't say anything. So it's nice that I've, I'm really glad that I didn't get them until I was already established in who I am and how comfortable I am. Changing personal life circumstances. That balance is a constant struggle to keep enough energy for home. And that is hard because sometimes at work, there's just, as I said, you can't predict this is what your caseload is going to be. Every day is different. And you can't always accommodate in the way that you really should. If I was a man who went through the treatment that I went through and was going back to work, I would not have all the demands of home and kids and scheduling and filling out forms and all of that stuff that we just do as women. That for sure, I think, makes a big difference. There was another woman at work. We were off at the same time, and our return to work was completely different. Her kids are older. They have kids of their own, and she lives on her own. We had a lot of the same issues with fatigue and headache and, you know, you get the brain fog that happens after chemo. She said she could go home at night and she didn't have to make supper. She didn't have the kids to worry about driving them wherever. She was able to go home and rest more. Even when she was off, she came back to work earlier than I did. But she said... I would just rest all day. That's all I have to do. I don't need to make supper for anybody. Clean up after anybody. That balance is something that they wouldn't be thinking about in my workplace. What
0: is the impact of work on my home life? That's the end of table two. Next is figure one. Diagrammatic conceptual model of conditions that compromise legitimacy and belonging. Figure will not be described. Although the experience of a sense of compromised legitimacy and belonging was a universal experience, the degree of distress experienced and the specific nature of the challenges varied across participants. Scope and purpose of the theoretical conceptualizations presented in these findings are not focused on individual differences, but specific examples and direct quotations are provided to illustrate potential areas of variation. For example, the nature of the disability experienced could present with particular accommodation needs that were more or less recognized and accepted within specific health contexts. The longer an individual has successfully spent in their health role generally contributed to the ability to manage performance and social challenges in periods of transition, as in the transition from student to practitioner were times of particular vulnerability. Section 3.2, six contributing conditions. 3.2.1, validity and transparency of the evaluation of competency. The health professions have explicitly identified competencies considered central to effective and safe practice. The assumptions and processes that guide the evaluation of whether an individual has these competencies, however, can be implicit and constructed in ways that leave disabled students and practitioners susceptible to disadvantage, alienation, and powerlessness. Some participants reported receiving negative evaluations that they perceived as based on faulty assumptions about disability. Study participants described being vulnerable to what they perceive as unfair evaluations of their competencies, such as being held to standards that are beyond the norm or being blamed for dysfunctional teams or workplace performance issues. Students can be particularly vulnerable given that their experience is one of continuous learning and assessment. In educational settings, the demonstration of competencies often takes place in simulated situations making an indirect connection to actual health professional competencies. It was noted that simulated evaluations do not always include the accommodations that might be available in the actual health setting. Among student participants, there was a sense of pride associated with going through a rigorous health professional education yet they held concerns related to the extent to which educational environments identify and make transparent bona fide requirements of the work in their evaluations. Lack of flexibility in methods of assessment can disadvantage student capacity to demonstrate competence and difficulties with assessment methods can be misinterpreted as evidence of competency issues. 3.2.2, the social and physical context of practice and education. Participants described supportive relationships with colleagues, employers, instructors, and others in health education and practice as respectful Collaborative, trusting, kind and warm, rigorous but fair and welcoming, sensitive to needs, open, encouraging, and friendly. However, despite these positive characteristics, the participants noted that their educational and professional settings vary in the extent to which their performance, belonging, and well being are supported. Students and practitioners report experiencing the context of health environments as poorly aligned with flexibility, open dialogue, and innovation that they believe would promote inclusion. For example, a focus on cost savings in healthcare has led to reductions in human resources, meaning that health professionals carry a heavier workload and work at a faster pace and with fewer resources. These requirements become implicitly, implicitly accepted as part of the standards for competency in health professions, raising the bar by which legitimacy is judged and potentially exhausting the reserves of people with disabilities. In turn, education and workplace demands can negatively impact social relations among colleagues and peers. In the educational setting, for example, student participants have experienced their peers as viewing their disability and accommodations as an unfair source of advantage in a highly competitive environment. Disabled students can perceive that their peers are judging them as less than desirable teammates in group work. In health environments where workload strain is common, the sense of isolation and exhaustion can lead health workers to become competitive and contribute to a competitive social climate that results in bullying and harassment. Both students and practitioners heard comments that ridiculed and are negatively labeled service recipients an experience that diminished their openness to disclose their disability and exercise their needs and rights for accommodation. This was particularly relevant to disabilities associated with mental health conditions and other less readily perceived disabilities, where the nature of the disability was poorly understood or not accepted as valid. The physical inaccessibility of many practice and education settings disadvantages and alienates students with disabilities. For example, educational settings that are not accessible put the onus on disabled students to do the extra planning to engage in learning activities, thus giving the impression that they are less valued. Many health contexts are not designed for accessibility and require special arrangements that can impact both the provision of health services and social relations at work. For example, participants described a lack of physical facilities in buildings such as accessible washrooms inability to access special field visits that require transportation or lack of sign language interpreters in hospitals required for practitioners to communicate. 3.2.3, the integration of inclusive practices across the health system. The third condition that emerged is the poor integration of inclusion practices in the organizational structure of health environments. This lack of integration perpetuates the disadvantage and exclusion experienced by people with disabilities. Anticipation and consideration of disabled staff was identified as a low priority in a health system faced with a myriad of pressing issues. Participants identified that healthcare setting has not been constructed to capitalize on the strengths of workers with disabilities, or as one participant stated, to be out front in the, to be out in front of the problem. Subsequently. Disabled health professions can experience limited institutional accountability for ways to identify potential accommodations, problem solve to identify novel situations and build workplace recognition that specific health related knowledge and skills can be delivered with expertise in atypical ways. For disabled health professionals, it can be difficult to locate responsibility and accountability in the system for securing accommodations and other legitimate forms of support. Experiences of limited institutional support include lengthy waiting periods for accommodation approvals, personally bearing the costs of equipment for accommodations with inordinately long periods for reimbursement and no identifiable accountable administrator responsible for overseeing accommodation requests, resulting in negotiating sustained periods without accommodation. Post-secondary institutions usually rely on disability services to facilitate supportive learning conditions. But these have largely been developed with the general undergraduate student population and classroom learning in mind. They are less oriented to the specific educational contexts of health professions, which include demonstration of knowledge and skills in real or simulated practice situations. Where education occurs in field work, trainees can have difficulties in identifying accountable procedures. Further, the transition from student to practitioner can be particularly challenging, with little in the way of supportive structures for inclusion. Health is an ever evolving system that requires ongoing proactive planning to support inclusivity. In particular, the rise of specialization in health settings reduces flexibility and mobility because health professionals are required to have specialized training, which might not be transferable to other specialties, This constrains the extent to which practice areas can be chosen to align with capacities. A clinician noted, for example, as far as nurses go, in the past, a nurse was a nurse, and transfer across practice areas was supported through education on the job. In educational programs, however, the situation is reversed. In students in the health professions, are required to demonstrate competencies that apply across a broad range of specialties. The evolution of health services requires anticipatory planning with regard to supporting the role of health providers with disabilities. However, participants experience lack of proactive planning of new services. The move to community-delivered health services is an example where the health innovation did not actively consider disability. For example, mobility and transportation limitations and environmental sensitivities can limit the ability of health professionals to enter the homes of service recipients, restricting the practice prospects of disabled practitioners. Section 3.2.4, maintaining the boundaries between personal and professional identities. Students and practitioners with disabilities can be faced with navigating dual and sometimes conflicting disability and professional identities. Although maintaining boundaries and professional relationships is a foundation of competent and ethical health practice, these boundaries are perhaps more complex for disabled professionals. Enacting the benefits of lived experience and work-related interactions requires ongoing professional reasoning with regard to what is to be shared with whom and when. Participants considered disability to be value a value-added experience in health service delivery. Yet, working in a health system where people with disabilities are poorly represented, participants described situations where they were identified as service recipients rather than professional service providers. This placed them in the position of deciding if and how to share their experiential knowledge while consciously enacting behaviors to prove legitimacy as competent health providers. Disabled practitioners, particularly visible disabilities, can be subject to uninvited personal questions about their disability that can be experienced as intrusive and inappropriate. Indeed, responding to comments that were received as invasive or diminishing was identified as a particular skill that required consideration of personal privacy, and maintaining professionalism while identifying and navigating opportunities for increasing the public's understanding of and comfort with disability. Section 3.2.5, being vulnerable to authority figures who undermine legitimacy and belonging. Many participants described authority figures being proactive to ensure their sense of legitimacy and belonging. Yet participants also described ongoing vulnerability to authority interactions that they perceived as hostile, belittling, unaccommodating and willfully ignorant of rights related to inclusion. This vulnerability is particularly tangible when people in authority have considerable influence on participants' careers. Student participants described incidents where faculty demonstrated negative assumptions about abilities slash capacities Disrespect of privacy and even public shaming, practitioners described exchanges with managers who acted in a way that suggested to them that they were seen as a liability. In both educational and practice settings, participants experienced instructors and managers with little understanding of disability and little effort to enact approved accommodations. These undermining interactions by authority figures were seen as ubiquitous within broader structures where negative assumptions about disability exist without question. In competitive resource-stretched environments and where there is limited leadership to proactively guide the enactment of full inclusion. In this way, participants felt threat of future career damage through communications across health contexts. Section 3.2.6, Dynamic Person-Level Factors Impacting Inclusion. Disability is not a static phenomenon and involves evolving adaptations and negotiating changes in health condition. Changes can, for example, involve temporary shifts in capacity, the presentation of new impairments, and for others, a process of decline in personal capacities. Students and practitioners could be challenged by trauma related to their own health experiences. Changes to the visibility of disability can occur requiring adaptations to manage performance and social interactions in the health context. Changes can also happen in the context of aging. Positive changes in capacity and health can also occur through shifts in treatments and the evolution of adaptive technologies the dynamic nature of disability impacts processes and relations within education and workplace settings. For example, the shifting nature of accommodation needs impacts decisions related to disclosure and can alter the attitudes of peers and managers. The dynamic nature of disability collides with systems not equipped to respond nimbly to those changes and, then, and thus compromises the professional's sense of legitimacy and belonging. Participants also negotiate changes in personal life circumstances, including marriage and parenthood, and learning to manage the intersection between disability, home, and work life. The age at which participants had their first experience with disability varied and could influence individual experiences of legitimacy and belonging. Where disability was present from an early age, Individuals described considerable experience in negotiating situations related to demonstrating their capacities in academic and work-related contexts. Where disability was an experience closer to the time of their health education, participants had little opportunity to acquire the levels of acceptance and understanding of their health situations to effectively manage emerging challenges in the health professions. Those whose acquired disability following work in the health professions had the benefit of familiarity with the demands of their role and having established supportive relations in the health context.
1: Section four, discussion. A key finding that emerged in this study is that the disabled people are unquestionably challenged to negotiate a sense of legitimacy and belonging in health education and workplace settings that espouse commitment to equity, diversity, and inclusion. Disabled health practitioners are constantly faced with championing the practice of inclusion by navigating the six conditions identified in this study that underlie the tension between institutional intent and their day-to-day experience, suggesting that existing ableist standards and expectations are assumed to be reasonable and necessary. This challenge can be viewed as a type of minority tax paid by people with disabilities when pursuing careers in health professions. Disabled health students and practitioners are taxed by the need to continuously prove their legitimacy in ableist education and health systems that structurally position disabled people as service recipients, and less capable practitioners. The term minority tax has been used in discourse around racial inequities in health professions and refers to students, staff, and faculty's extra responsibilities for achieving equity and diversity. Minority tax leads to intensified demands on people from systemically marginalized groups without compensation for their extra labor therefore intensifying their challenges and preventing them from being equally represented in health professions. Examples of the extra labor described by the participants in this study centered around individualized work to raise disability awareness within the institution to have their own accommodation needs met navigating misconceptions about disabled practitioners to legitimize legitimize their role and advocating for disability rights in the institution. The results of this study indicate that this minority tax experience by disabled health students and practitioners is unacknowledged and opaque, which increases their sense of isolation and alienation. A sense of isolation, in turn, is directly linked to uncertainty about belonging and other adverse effects, including emotional stress, decreased effectiveness, and increased health issues. Indeed, the study identified six interrelated but distinct conditions providing insights into specific social processes or recurring patterns of social relations, inherent in the health education and practice arena. These conditions appear to either support or compromise the experiences of legitimacy and belonging and ultimately influence inclusion. For example, the first condition is lack of transparency in the evaluation of core practice competencies that can leave students and practitioners with disabilities feeling alienated and powerless. The development of bona fide competency requirements in the health professions is a complex task and entails determining that competency standards are reasonable and necessary. It also requires ongoing evaluation of how particular groups are disadvantaged relative to the standard based on generalized assumptions, how assessment methods for standards might disadvantage particular groups, and the extent to which assessment of competency standards are subject to biased evaluations. Intensifying the barriers for disabled people in the health professions is the emphasis on individual competence with limited attention to collective competence. Although measurements of interdependent collaborative performance exist, only a couple are situated in the context of medical education. Moreover, existing measurements of interdependence are critiqued for spanning across disciplines and application contexts while also demonstrating inconsistent theoretical conceptual and measurement technique terminologies. Not surprisingly, assessment models continue to focus on the individual while neglecting to capture the nuanced inclusion and contributions of individuals working together on the health team. Our insights reveal how efforts towards inclusion are impacted by the pressures of cost efficiency measures that reduce budgets and resources and result in heavier workload demands. These demands can both become constructed as a legitimate standard for competency and strain social relations. Workplace inclivities and hostilities and incivilities have been recognized as a problem in public service and health sectors, where policies related to efficiencies compromise caring relations. For disabled health professionals, this means that they are at risk of being viewed as both incapable to meet the standard and a burden on the system. When the workload and pace demands are constructed as core competencies instead of a systemic reality, their exclusion is legitimized. Likewise, The limited integration of practices related to inclusion at organizational levels creates an ad hoc approach. For practitioners and students with disabilities, the systemic response to inclusion is individualized, often unpredictable, and even personally harmful, as in the case of people personally bearing the costs associated with reasonable accommodations. Rarely is the systemic response one that focuses on institutional inaccessibility. There is a growing understanding that inclusion in diverse organizations is a complex process that requires explicit and direct high level visioning and oversight related to human resource management. Birdman highlights that inclusion is influenced by multiple layers of norms and practices ranging from interpersonal relations through to organizational level norms, policies, and practices. The findings of this study also highlight that health systems themselves are dynamic and need to be proactively planned and organized to be responsive to the inclusion of disabled practitioners. The day-to-day enactment of organizational values, policies, and directives happens through frontline leadership structures. Ferdman refers to these leadership positions as linchpin across organizational efforts toward inclusion. They are the purveyors of organizational values and policies. In this study, participants described their sense of vulnerability to the power held by individuals in leadership positions through, for example, participants' perception of leadership's authority in the evaluation of performance, their capacity for public forms of shaming, and their transmission of information about the individual in a way that could damage career prospects. Indeed, Health professions education programs inherently pose high risks for experiencing shame. In particular, disabled students are more prone to experience shame as they navigate the learning environment. Section four point one limitations. Although the study has one of the largest data sets for research on disabled health students and practitioners, Study participants came from only two Canadian provinces, and may not capture experiences common in other jurisdictions. We employed critical disability theory in this study, which eliminates certain aspects of participants' experiences and foregoes others. Other conceptual lenses may have cast a light on dimensions of participants' experiences that were not able to capture. Future research would benefit from the use of different conceptual lenses to enrich the understanding of the ways in which health professional students and providers with disabilities experience the learning and practice environment. Section 4.2 Implications The experiences of students and practitioners with disabilities in the health professions demonstrate the processes by which their sense of legitimacy and belonging are compromised. The study findings indicate that for disabled health professionals and students to experience an overall sense of legitimacy and belonging, priority need to be given to system level practices and policies that support inclusion. For example, planning that proactively considers Disability in the organization and in the delivery of health services, direct attention to the impact of cost cutting measures on inclusion practice, consideration of competencies related to team functioning, attention to accommodations and accountability structures in fieldwork education, and advancing leadership requirements for inclusion. Attention also needs to be given to processes that The oversight of the day-to-day marginalization of students and practitioners with disabilities in the health professions. Implementing the National Standard of Canada for Psychology, Health and Safety in the Workplace may hold promise for identifying and addressing threats to inclusion in health organizations. Additionally, this study identifies a need for attention to competencies in the health professions, and in particular, how these are evaluated and judged. The onus is on professional regulatory bodies to determine an inclusive and transparent delineation of competency requirements. Included in this should be direct attention to competencies related to lived knowledge and experience of disability as a potential value-add to the health system. Finally, educational actions, including devoted time and resources, are needed to increase understanding of disability in the health professions, with particular attention to promoting social relations that build responsibility for supporting inclusion. The authors wish to thank the students and clinicians who gave their valuable time and shared their often very difficult experiences in service of this research project.